Hello, hello! Welcome back to Loki's Librarian. If you are new here, welcome. This is where I am reading through the enormous library books you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and I tell you what I think about it. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my video, and let me know what you think in the comments. Now, this week's book is somewhat topical, uh, more an indication of how history repeats itself. In this case, I sincerely hope not, because Red Famine, Stalin's War on Ukraine by Anne Applebaum, is history that should never be repeated anywhere. And the topical cocktail is simply the Ukrainian flag, which is one part banana liqueur and one part blue carousel, which I have apparently been mispronouncing as Kirako. It's a genuine hazard of one who gets most of their vocabulary through reading is that uh, you're probably going to mispronounce some words. So let's do this. The Holodomor is what the Ukrainians call it. And the Holodomor is a mixed word from Ukrainian, holod meaning hunger and more meaning extermination. And it actually has its origins in 1917. Yeah, glad I measured it out. The Holodomor has its origins in 1917 with the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. Prior to the fall of the Romanov Empire, Ukraine was part of the Russian Empire. It may have been part of the Habsburg dynasty at one point, I don't know, but at the time our story starts, it had been part of the Russian Empire. When the Bolsheviks took out the Russian imperial family, Ukraine saw its chance for freedom and nationalization. And Ukraine, prior to this brief blip in history, had never been its own country. It always belonged to one country or another. However, it clearly had its own distinctive identity, it, its own language, its own customs, its own clothing. So even though it belonged to various empires, it didn't like, when it was part of, say, the Habsburg dynasty, if it was, they didn't speak German or Austro-Hungarian, they spoke Ukrainian. Uh, Poland, Russia, all of its surrounding neighbors acknowledged that Ukraine had its own identity, they just never let them actually explore that identity. So, with the fall of the Romanovs, this was Ukraine's chance and they took it. Um, they, they declared themselves a country and this was even working for them. I'm almost disappointed. I feel like I should probably have gotten more of the banana liqueur so I could mix more of this because if I fuck this up, I'm going to be really sad. Ukraine had been recognized as a sovereign state by several nations post-World War I, which did not suit the Bolsheviks' plan for the breadbasket of Europe. Uh, the rich soil of Ukraine, and they have a comparatively mild weather year-round, means that they basically have a year-long growing season. They, they plant one type of crop for the summer and another type for the winter, but year-round they have food available. And because of their very, very fertile soil, they're, I mean, basically large parts of industrial and urban Europe are dependent on Ukrainian grain exports for food because Europe would otherwise starve. Okay, to slowly pour this over a spoon so that the liquor doesn't quite, so that basically we float the blue on top. I already f***ed it up. It did not do what it was supposed to do. I'll include a link to the cocktail so you guys can see what it's supposed to look like when done by a professional, which is not me. Damn it. That sucks. Oh well. It's supposed to like separate so you have yellow on the bottom and blue on the top and then it looks like the Ukrainian flag. Mine doesn't do that because I suck. I just have blue. That's okay. 
that's okay. I'm not a professional bartender. I'm a professional nerd. So, you know, it's mega harsh though. Mega harsh. Ooh, ooh, glad I brought water upstairs with me. Not awesome. You can feel the burn. Starting with Lenin. I remember that Bolsheviks rolled in. Uh, Lenin was the first of the leaders. Russia had big plans for Ukraine. And those plans did not include Ukraine finding a sense of independence. So to that end, the Ukraine actually experienced a smaller famine in the 1920s as Lenin and a burgeoning socialist party had demands for the crops of Ukraine, which coupled naturally with a naturally occurring drought and short harvests led to a smaller famine. Now, all of this uh, was led to government assistance. At that time, the Soviet Union did not have the lockdown on information that would come later. So news of this famine got out fairly quickly and international assistance was offered and accepted. Uh, um, I mean, even our future president, Herbert Hoover, at the time clearly not president, um, was in a position to oversee foreign aid, however. So he sent help under the requirement that everyone appearing in the Ukraine to assist with the famine relief would basically be guaranteed immunity from prosecution by the Soviets. And, and this was granted and subsequently far fewer people died during the earlier famine. And recognizing that the Ukraine was united enough to nationalize and withdraw from the United Soviet Socialist States, Lenin at least backed off on the grain requisitions, enough that Ukraine recovered from this earlier famine after one season, and for the next 12 years, Ukraine was slowly pulled into the Soviet States. Now, Lenin died in 1924, and the nine years between his death and the start of the Holodomor was a power struggle between Trotsky and Stalin. So Joseph Stalin wins this particular power struggle and Trotsky is expelled from the Soviet Union in 1929. He goes to Latin America. He is eventually killed with an ice axe by, I think, one of Castro's buddies, actually. But Stalin, having won that particular power struggle, immediately begins pulling the Ukraine to the Soviet Union, starting by making the kulaks the enemy of the people. Now, Kulak simply meant anyone who had a successful farm. That's all it took, being just a little bit successful. As Henry Hazlitt said, the whole gospel of Karl Marx can be summed up in a single sentence. Hate the man who is better off than you. Envy and greed, that's all socialism is. There's like no redeeming qualities to this. The Kulaks, having become quite successful, I mean, to the point that they're not only able to, but have to hire outside help to assist in the harvest and running of their farms, are despised by socialists. Because anyone that shows that capitalism works is automatically the enemy of the people in a socialist state. Automatically. So they started rounding up the Kulaks. They declared them the enemy of the people. And it's really interesting because she does an outstanding job showing how this sort of dehumanizing language leads to the capability of shipping people off and justifying theft of property. We need to be very aware of this, America, because they're using that on us right now. All right? They, they use that dehumanizing language, they being the media, the government, our Congress critters. They use this dehumanizing language, right? We need to be aware of that. I do it. I know I've done it in past reviews where I'm like, yo, hmm, I'm going to do it in this review because I wrote the write-up up and I know what I say later on. We got to be aware of the dehumanizing language. Okay, we are all human. Nobody gets off the planet alive. Just remember that. At least, probably not in my lifetime. Maybe in the future. Should have done the famine cocktail the husband found 
I, I didn't because I was actually sick yesterday. I couldn't make it to the store for the supplies. It's not awesome. Not awesome. Not, not, not digging the Ukrainian flag. I have no problem with Ukraine. Let me clarify that. I like Ukraine. I feel my heart bleeds for the people of Ukraine for what is going on with them right now. The cocktail for their flags sucks. Having declared the kulaks the enemy of the people and having destroyed them, they then, they being the communists, proceeded to force collectivization on the remaining Ukrainian farmers. The methods used to enforce the collectivization were brutal. And it was brutal theft of existing property and an extremely high rate of taxation for anyone who objected. And through these methods, Ukraine was slowly drained of her resources. It took a couple of years, but to ensure compliance, Stalin set obscenely high grain requisitions, at least one third higher than was actually produced. And there was no adjustment for the fact that what he wanted wasn't actually produced. It was, they were physically incapable. It's not that they were trying to hold anything back, although certainly they would have so that they didn't die. They literally could not produce more, could not provide it with what he wanted. So for example, he might demand that Ukraine produce and ship 90 million tons of food and the actual production, what they actually grew was only 60 million tons, but they still had to provide it. So when they could not provide the 90 million tons of food, um, Stalin used taxation of what, I don't know, but taxation to make up the shortfall. And then to enforce these draconian demands, he sent in good little members of the Communist Party to conduct searches of the peasants' home to make sure they were not hiding any foodstuffs that were required to be requisitioned. This included seed grain for the next year's harvest. I mean, everything was taken. And the seed grain, incidentally, if you don't have that, you don't have a harvest the next year because you have nothing to grow. But that was taken too because they might eat the seed grain if it was left and then they'd survive another year. And that, Stalin didn't want that. He didn't want them surviving. We'll get to that later. So, the um, volunteer squads who would do these searches would go through the house, they'd break open walls to make sure there was no grain hidden there. They'd poke topsoil for soft spots where a cache might be buried. And by 1932, there was nothing left in Ukraine, nothing. Um, some tried to leave the collective farms to go to the city. Um, at this point, Stalin implemented a passport system. So if you are caught off of your farm, at best, they would just return you to the farm. At worst, you could be executed for treason and anything in between. They might ship you off to a gulag and you might actually survive in a gulag. To not be where the Soviet state tells you to be is a crime. That is socialism. Just bear that in mind. All right, this happens. Literally everywhere socialism has been tried, this is the course it takes. Saw it during Mao's Great Famine. When I read that book, see it here. Exact same course. Yeah. Now moving to a city, any city, was a good move for Ukrainian peasant. Because if you get to a city, and if you could get hired as a factory worker, you were guaranteed a rations card. And I mean, the rations were absolute shit. They were certainly not enough, I mean, remember, Standard diet is about 2,000 calories a day, and the rations card might get you maybe on a push to 1,000. So you're getting half of what's needed to survive, or, or to be healthy, I should say, but it's enough to survive on. It's subsistence, but, and it would keep you alive. 
And for those who could not make it out, to those who could not make it to the cities, the famine was a very real ordeal. And by spring and summer of 1933, starvation had truly set in. Uh, usually spring and summer offers hope, right? Because new life is starting to spring forth from the soil. There's, there's no hope at this time. Nothing's being grown because all the seed grain was sent out of the country. And because everyone in the country was starving, everyone was picking off any new plant life as quickly as it could grow. And those on the farms are no better off. You might think they were because farms are where the food was grown, but there's nothing to grow. He took all the seed grain. And any food grown on collective farms belonged to the state, not to those who grew it. That's the horror of socialism. You're not allowed to eat what you're growing because it, belongs to, it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the state. And if you're caught picking off the early blooming wheat stalks, uh, you would be shot on sight. If you were caught planting your own garden, they would confiscate your food and kill you because it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the state. And when starvation sets in, it follows a very set course. So this is a direct quote from the book. She, she describes it very well. In the first phase, the body consumes its stores of glucose. Feelings of extreme hunger set in, along with constant thoughts of food. In the second phase, which can last for several weeks, the body begins to consume its own fats, and the organism weakens drastically. In the third phase, the body devours its own proteins, cannibalizing tissues and muscles. Eventually, the skin becomes thin, the eyes become distended, the legs and belly swollen as extreme imbalances lead the body to retain water. And that's universal. I mean, that, that process was pretty much described the same way in Mao's Great Famine. And I mean, that, that burning of glucose sounds really good, right? This is why people are so keen on ketogenic diets, because you burn off the glucose and then you burn fat. Um, if the above description does not make you leery of keto, I just going to throw this in here, guys. Your brain is about 60% fat, and the rest of it is made up of minerals, proteins, uh, and water. So first of all, your glucose goes away. Yes, that, that would be the carbs that are digested into glucose. But next, your body consumes its fat, which includes the rather large part of your brain that is fat, which means literally the only thing you could think about is food. You ever hear somebody on keto who say, oh, I don't even miss the carbs? I don't even miss it? Well, you do because you're talking about it. You're aware that you're missing a key part of your diet. And if you don't get food, your body will literally start to digest itself. Okay. Uh, survivors of the famine developed a survival trait where they might not even remember the famine itself. They'll remember events before, they'll remember events after. But the years of the famine, all they can remember is the hunger. And in some cases, this repression allowed them to forget some genuinely horrible things done in the name of survival, including cannibalism and necrophagy. Now, what is the difference between those two? Cannibalism is when you kill someone specifically to consume their flesh. Okay, so that would be Hannibal Lecter. Buffalo Bill, right? Well, Buffalo Bill made, you know, women's clothing out of women. But that's where he met Hannibal Lecter. He would kill them specifically to eat their flesh. That's a cannibal. And there are documented stories of cannibalism. All right, documented. I remember hearing about signs that say, don't eat your children. Cannibalism happened. Those were generally prosecuted. If they caught you killing your child <laughs> to eat him or her, you would be prosecuted. And those people were caught fairly quickly. The, I mean, the sudden absence of children, even in the famine, was noticed and commented on. Less talked about, in fact, never talked about, was necrophagy. 
This is when a person dies as a result of famine, for example, and you figure, I mean, hell, they're dead anyways. Why let all that meat go to waste? They've already died and I'm starving. And that is far more common and, and never talked about, like never. Probably because the survivors had to forget what they did to survive, had to, because you don't come back from something like that, right? Um, those who, those bodies that were not eaten served as a valuable lesson to the Ukrainians who might still have considered nationalization as an alternative to the Soviet socialist state. Stories abound of parents allowing their children to starve to death because they could always make more babies, but their spouse was irreplaceable. Right? Um, children would be told a parent had died only for the kid to say, I don't give a shit. I'm hungry. Give me food. I don't care that dad's dead. I want to eat. Uh, when your legs are so swollen with edema that movement hurts, the act of sitting could literally cause the skin to burst like an overripe fruit and just pus to flood. And if you're hungry enough, if you actually obtained food, the very act of eating could cause your stomach to burst and you would pretty much die instantly. Sometimes the fact that you weren't dying was suspicious enough and you could result in extra searches of your house and property. Um, theft was common. Violent theft, when it involved food, was the norm. Frequently, theft resulted in death by one party or the other, the one doing the stealing or the one trying to protect what was theirs. No one was ever tried for any of these deaths because who, one, who would blame them? They're starving. Two, who's left to try them? Everybody's dead. One woman, after watching her six children wither away and starve, went insane, took all of her clothes off, unbraided her hair, and told everyone that the red broom had taken her family away. Um, another woman, after walking all day to trade clothes for bread, returned home only to find the bread was nothing more than a crust stuffed with paper. Uh, she lost her mind and stabbed her son to death because for her it was better than watching her child suffer anymore. Give him a quick death. Mm. Eventually, as more people died, the countryside became indifferent to their shared suffering. And food became so all-consuming that nothing else mattered. Not even the suffering of others or yourself. Food. Food is all you care about. Whole families died with no one left to bury them. No one even left to alert the authorities, such as they were, that bodies needed to be picked up for burial. Now, quite clearly, not everyone died. Some must have lived for the story to have made it out of the Soviet state because it's for damn sure the Russians didn't want this news leaking out. So how did those who survived manage it? More often than not, the lucky ones to survive, uh, they survived by retaining the family cow. They would feed the cow before anything. They, they would pull the thatching off of their roofs to feed the cow because the cow produces calorie-dense fatty milk. It's not a full meal, but it's calories, and it's got the fat in it, and in times of starvation, it would provide enough calories to fend off the worst privations of a famine. And that allowed families to live. And, and that's only for those families that were blessed enough by the communists for any, to retain the family cow. Uh, not everybody was given permission to keep the cow. For anyone whose cow was stolen by the state, there were other methods of survival. Some survived by joining those activist brigades, the ones who went door to door searching for food, uh, because they were promised a portion of any food they found. So if they found, you know, a 
uh, what did she call it, a pood, which I don't even know what unit, of, I've heard it before, but I don't know what that unit means, so we'll, we'll just shorten it, say it's a pound, say you find a pound of grain, you might get a tenth percent of that, so you might get 10% of a pound, right? And then get enough of that, you can bake your own bread. Uh, others appealed to family who lived outside the Ukraine. Uh, if they could get there, the family might take them in. Some survived using filler food. Rather than wheat for flour, they would grind whatever they could find into ersatz flour and bake bread using that. That could include drywall dust, sand, whatever you could use to fill it in. If you were lucky enough to live near a water source, you might be able to fish enough to keep your family alive. Some people ate whatever they could catch, which included domesticated dogs and cats. Some harvested from the forest if they were lucky enough to live near the forest. And there were some people who refused to live, lose their souls to the Soviet evil, and they would help their neighbors out however they could. They might adopt their neighbor's children or provide part of their rations to those who could not find factory work. Some survived by trading everything they had to the state stores, which were called Torgsons, which only traded in hard currency. Now, isn't that interesting, right? Um, because they had the ruble, right? Russia was printing out rubles just as fast as we're printing out the dollar these days. But the state stores would only accept hard currency, meaning gold or silver. So if you had any gold or silver hidden on the family farm, and I mean hidden good because, believe me, they would steal that right along with the grain. Um, you could use that to trade in at a Torgsen for some rations. Pay attention, America, because our very own president has advised that food shortages are coming and the dollar loses value every day that they print more. Some survived by faking membership in writers' organizations or party membership clubs. They would sneak in for food and the risk of being caught was worth the reward of food. Some survived by being dropped off at state-run orphanages if they were young enough. Now, unlike the famine of the early 20s, this one was almost entirely hidden. News did get out. Some by family members who lived in Poland or Germany. Some was by an enterprising young reporter from Wales named Gareth Jones, who was in Moscow seeking an interview with Stalin. Jones was fluent in Russian. I don't remember if he got the interview with Stalin. I feel like he did not. But while there, he expressed a desire to see the Ukraine, and that was approved. And he was, because, you know, hubris. They thought they could control him, basically. And so he was given a travel pass and a guide to Kiev on a state-sanctioned tour. Only he didn't follow the state-sanctioned route. He jumped off the train about 40 miles outside of Kiev and walked the countryside with a backpack full of food that he shared with who he could. And he wrote one hell of an article, which is actually included in the book. Um, it's one of the pictures, but it's clear enough you can read it. And it was originally published in the Evening Standard. A rebuttal piece was immediately published by Stalin's New York Times butt buddy, Walter Durante. I gotta say, historically, the New York Times has a lot of evil to answer for. I mean, maybe they should just be shut down, seriously, or maybe relegated to the tabloid section along with the National Enquirer and the Weekly World News. They are not a journal with any level of integrity. More on that next month. Unfortunately for Ukraine and posterity, around this time, a young rising star in Germany named Adolf Hitler 
had the nations of the world in a panic over what he would do next. Consequently, the nations of the world didn't want to know what was going on in the Soviet state. They, they didn't want to know about it. And so they ignored Jones's writing and took Durantes to heart, and the Holodomor was largely forgotten. It was ignored and then forgotten by the nations of the world. Stalin, in a moment of sadism marked by a life of such, determined to run a census after 1933. I think he wanted to prove that communism was so great the people were thriving. Uh, instead, the numbers showed a decline in population in the Ukraine of like 4.5 million. And the guy who ran the census was executed. So, <laughs> because he didn't want that news getting out. <laughs> Note, we do not know if that's how many actually died. We'll never know how many people actually died in the Holodomor. The best we can do is make an educated guess. Um, we know that around the time the famine started, the population of Ukraine was about 31 million, and that approximately 13% of the population vanished between 1931 and 1934, which gives us a closer estimate of about 3.9 million excess deaths, meaning beyond what could be accounted for by old age or accident, the, the normal attrition rate of you know people just dying because death is a part of life. So that gives us a rough estimate of 3.9 million dead of hunger. And I said, we'll never know the true number. Now, summer of 1933, Stalin eases the restrictions and grain requirements, and Ukraine slowly starts to recover. And effectively, the famine was over at that point. But how this happened and why this happened as uh, author and Applebaum lays out was entirely political. Stalin did not want Ukraine nationalizing and possibly resisting communism. He needed the breadbasket of Europe to feed the hungry masses in Russia so that he could prove that communism worked. He wasn't sure the Communist Party in Ukraine had complete control, so he ensured it with these draconian food, food requisitions and harsh penalties for dissent. And to drive his message home, he starved an entire nation nearly to death. And Applebaum lays out a very clear and concise case on how this was a man-made famine versus a natural one. Now, a natural famine is one that would occur as a result of drought affecting harvest, right? Or wildfires burning down crops. Those could be natural famines. Man-made is the result of Stalin stealing every bite of food and shipping it outside of the Ukraine. And of the food that stayed in Ukraine, 80% of it went to the cities, where only 40% of the population lived. He was deliberately trying to kill the farmers. That 40% who lived in the cities was so horribly cowed by the Communist Party, they were scared to help in any way, because then they would lose their ration cards. Now, I said this book was somewhat topical, and... What does a 90-year-old catastrophe have to do with current events? Well, with the emptying of the Ukrainian farms to death, there was prime pasture left, a lot of it. Breadbasket of the Ukraine's got to be planted, and there was no one left to farm it. The gulags, with the coming of World War II, needed to make room for new prisoners. And so they were slowly emptied with forced relocation to the Ukraine. I'm not sure if all of the Russian settlers were gulag expatriates or some were volunteer resettlers. Regardless, there was a massive influx of Russian immigrants to the farmlands of the Ukraine, 
many of whom stayed after the fall of the wall and the collapse of the Soviet state in 1989-91. It would not take a determined Putin, inheritor of Stalin's estate, very long to locate one or even several that said they missed Russia and wanted Russia to take charge again, providing Putin all the justification he needs in his mind to roll tanks into a sovereign nation. So there's the connection. This is why Russia seems to feel they have some jurisdiction over the Ukraine. Add into this a fun little quirk of history and bad journalism. Over the last 90 years, the Holodomor has become horribly politicized. Basically, if you acknowledge that it happened, at best, people think that you are falling prey to right-wing propaganda, and at worst, they'll call you a literal Nazi. Because only, only a Nazi would ever think that a government would try to kill its own people at that level. Because people don't seem to realize that this equals this. They are the same. All right? Fuck. Arguably, communism is worse. Because it has killed millions more. All right? Now, Nazism sucked. There was nothing good about Hitler. And that man is burning in the deepest level of hell right next to Stalin and Mao, all right? They all need burning in hell together for what they have done to their peoples. That same quirk, if you uh, don't believe the Holodomor happened, then you're a left communist wackadoo. There's that name calling, right? No joke. The, the tragedy that is the Holodomor, it is nothing more than a political talking point to career Congress critters. Not just in the United States, in Europe and, and I gotta wonder how much of that rhetoric is feeding the current conflict because I have already heard at least one rumor that Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is a Nazi this despite the fact that he's Jewish I mean I suppose it's not impossible right I mean it's kind of far-fetched that I've got to get that curtain hung. It's kind of far-fetched that he might, you know, be both Jewish and a Nazi, but it's not technically impossible that he could hold both ideologies in his heart. Maybe he's one of those self-hating Jews. Maybe. I'm not even sure if Putin remains a communist or even believes in communism over capitalism. I'm pretty sure he just likes power. And communism remains a quick way to ensure that power if you're already at the top. Getting to the top from the bottom is a real bitch. Doable, but a bitch. Much easier to do as a communist than a capitalist, though, right? Getting to the top as a communist, you just have to denounce other people. Show them that you're a good little party member, and you can rise to the top. Capitalism requires you to only not to not only work for a living, but to actually provide some value through the work you do to the people around you. Communism just requires you to hate the man who is better off than you. And hatred is easy. Providing value that someone is willing to pay you for is way harder. And as the author of last week's book said, um, that was um, Umberto Fontava, for those of you who didn't watch last week's, there's nothing like having failed in the grubby business of business to make someone anti-capitalist and fancy himself culturally superior for it. So that's it for this week. If you needed further proof that your government is trying to kill you, check out Red Famine, Stalin's War on Ukraine by Ann Applebaum.
this book was excellent. It falls under the heading of books I liked for being well written and providing an excellent knowledge base of a little talked about historical moment. It was well researched. But I can't say I actually liked it because, I mean, if you like the fact that the government can force you to starve to death because you don't think they should be stealing the fruits of your labor, then you are probably one of those far-left wackadoos who think the Holodomor didn't happen. But if you want to know more about it, this was an excellent resource. I'll see you guys next week. Bye.